This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. Are you guilty of training too hard or too easy, or have you been able to find the right balance with hard and easy training? And is there a perfect balance? If there is, where is it? We've heard of 80-20 training. We've heard of polarized training. We've heard of pyramidal training, maybe just doing two hard sessions a week or three hard sessions a week or even more. And today, we're going to talk about all the factors that contribute to getting this balance right. First, Dad, welcome to the episode. Let's start with gratitudes. What are you grateful for this week? Thanks, George. I'm looking forward to this episode as usual. Um, uh, look, a journey that we've been on um, with our first granddaughter, Eden, um, who happens to live up in uh, the Sunshine Coast in Coolum. Um, her second birthday was on the weekend and we got a surprise visit from them for a week, which was absolutely brilliant um, and shared her second birthday um, with her and and her mum and dad. And uh, it was a great a great week to have her here. And why is that special? Why am I grateful for that? Well, she was born deaf um, and certainly it has not um, uh, brought her any, you know, she doesn't know any different. She she has been uh, given cochlear implants and she can hear incredibly well and she's got great um, um, verbal ability already as a two-year-old. Um, it's quite intriguing. She pulls her ears off. We call her cochleas her ears. She pulls them off regularly and uh, when she doesn't want to hear the world. So it's been interesting watching her um, evolve as a deaf uh, baby child. Um, and she's happy and, and content and knows no different. And and when she gets ready for a bath, she throws her ears off because she knows she can't get them wet. And, um, and therefore, she's sitting in the bath with no sound because um, she can't hear anything. Um, without the cochlear implant. So we're very grateful that um, that she's been given this gift of cochlear implants to enable her to function, um, you know, pretty normally uh, in the world. So, yeah, that's my gratitude. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good one. I, um, I was having a conversation with uh, one of our brothers um, and my gratitude is that we grew up uh, learning how to train uh, properly and how to run train and that seems like a little bit of a weird one but there's a reason behind it and we were like we're grateful that even though we didn't always enjoy it you you had us doing intervals from a very very early age you had us doing kind of proper running training um, and you knew the value in it and to be fair to you you were never um, pushy or um, forcing us into anything but you were definitely strongly encouraging that this is what we're going to do and this is how to train and we just can't believe the amount of life lessons come from that um, you learn straight away from an early age you learn discipline you learn hard work you learn mental toughness you learn how to push through pain and pain tolerance you learn how to do things when you don't feel like it you learn that uh, you don't get a re- immediate reward you know from the training sessions it's, it's learning how to do something in the short term short-term pain for a reward later on which is I think a really important lesson and I've always been fascinated by how much uh, training whether it's running training or swim training or any kind of sport training is such a great metaphor for life because it just uh, it just represents everything that uh, that you need to do in order to be successful in something. It's it's consistency. It's it's hard work now for reward later, even if you're not getting rewarded straight away. And uh, we were just laughing about how grateful that we feel like we have an advantage in life because we learned that at a young age and uh, we were really stoked with that. I love that one, George. Uh, that's, that's, 
unbelievable to hear you say that. And uh, it's always a bit of a challenge as a parent looking after their children in sport as to, you know, not put your expectations on your children. And that was a tough one um, because you're so excited to see them uh, getting into into all sports. And that was one of the things that my dad taught me was, um, you know, have a crack at everything. Uh, when you're young and then you can decide which one you like and if you've just narrowed your your vision into one sport or two sports you haven't really experienced anything and you know we were in badminton competition for you know years we were playing table tennis competitions um you know we did little ass we did cricket we did soccer we did football um, we did cross-country running um you know we did swim squad we just had a crack at everything and and, you know, some of the sports I wished I'd had a go at um, weren't available to us in our country town. Um, you know, I love hockey, but, uh, but you know, we just didn't have any hockey competition in our town. So, um, but, yeah, that, that's really good to hear that. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that I think you would really love is that you've been able to experience that. You know, you, you're really good at touch football and, um, you know, things that, that really – you feel that you want to do, you can put your hand to and have a crack at, uh, and not be too narrow with your with your choices in your sport. And I think it's never too late to change, um, and it's always great. I, I see some people who've started marathon running at sixty, you know, haven't run yeah. their whole lives, and yet, yet here they are, you know, starting at sixty, and you know, the, probably the only benefit is they've got no injuries <laughs> from from you know training so difficult uh, difficulty um, that you know, put stress on your body. So they're kind of coming into it fresh. Um, so yeah, it's, that's really great gratitude. And yeah, like I said, I, um, I, you did get the balance right because I loved running. So I always enjoyed that even if sometimes you didn't feel like training or you wanted to go play with your friends when you had a training session. But, uh, one thing I didn't like, and I still don't like that much is swimming. And I just, I, I asked you to, if I could stop swinging when I was about 12, around the age of 12, because I just really didn't enjoy it. And you said, sure. And that was, <laughs> I really, I, did, I wasn't sure if you're going to say yes or not, but, um, you know, because Liam and Matt were good swimmers and, and Matt kept swimming, uh, but I just hated it. I hated every session. I didn't enjoy it at all. And um, yeah, you said sure, which is which is great. Moving on uh, into our what has caught our attention uh, and a few things recently that we want to quickly touch on before we get into the topic. And what was yours? Um, I was listening uh, with real interest um, hearing Cam Worth talk um, and and it's always intrigued me, um, him as an athlete. He's such an exceptionally different athlete and that was what caught my attention. What's exceptionally different about him? Well, he's a world tour cyclist who can compete in the Tour de France and the Cl- Spring Classics and he can do the Ironman and he does them at an elite level as a triathlete. You know, he's come fifth in Kona. He's he's won Ironman races. He's been on podiums. And he's doing it together. It's not like he's stopped one and started the other. He is available for Ineos as a World Tour rider. And in if there's no races that they need him for, he's off competing in an Ironman. I, I just find that unbelievably outstanding. And I always say to a lot of athletes who come to me who want to be, say, for example, there's a, a race in – in Australia, in Melbourne, or not in Melbourne, but in Victoria, the Three Peaks event, which is an eight-hour to 12-hour endurance ride over 4,000 metres of climbing. And 
you know, I will stop you there and say that if uh, if anyone listens to our podcast, they will have heard us talk about three picks maybe two hundred times. <laughs> I really yes. hope they yeah. know the event by now. And if there's any yes. interstate or international people, I think by now you should probably come down and do it because <laughs> we talk about it yeah. so much. <laughs> we do, yeah. but yeah. but that's but that's an example of a specific event where you need to ride your bike in in mountains. And and I've got athletes who want to do half Ironmans and Ironmans and still train for the three peaks. So, you know, I always say to them, that is something that will make you less uh, successful at both. You'll be okay at it, but you'll be average. Um, but if you concentrate on one of them, you'll be really good at it and and then do that properly and then set your sights on, say you pick three peaks, do that properly and then train for Ironman and do that properly. You'll get better outcomes. Whereas Cam Worth is is absolutely um, making that a, a joke. He's he's exceptional at both, um, and I just find that that's grabbed my attention. That that was you know the stuff that he's doing as a triathlete, and then he can you know re- he doesn't ride his time trial bike that much, and yet he can still time trial as one of the best elite triathlete riders in, in the you know it's not the peloton but it, in triathlon. Um, I often wonder if he'd actually concentrate a little bit more on his time trial bike, um, whether he'd be better at it. Um, but yeah, that you know that just that thought of of uh, spreading yourself too thinly it, it doesn't work. Yet here's an example, an exception that it does. And we'd probably say he's an outlier. We'd probably say that he is showing that it can work, um, but he's he's definitely an outlier and. Um... When we had Dr. Mitch Anderson on the podcast, he made a really good point that he said, it is great to model the pros where we can, but you've got to remember that they're the top 0.01% of the population. And so you might want to model certain things that work, but also understand that some of the things that they do, we just can't replicate. Um, so I'm not saying it's impossible what, what Camworth's doing, but um, he is definitely an outlier. And and I would say most of the time, your rule of trying to do both will just end up in, in multiple average results, correct? <laughs> correct. And, yeah. and look, Taking that point on board, I, I totally agree with you. Look, the everyday average you know, listener who's listening to this podcast is an age grouper who probably doesn't have that ability to, you know, Cam is exceptional. And on that point, I he's lining up for Kona this year and I just can't wait to see how he goes because he's he's really, his attention to detail about his training is, is, is pretty good and he really lacks in his running ability. And that's what he admitted. Um, and he needs to work on that. And, you know, he is an elite swimmer and rider and he's still a fantastic runner, but doesn't spend a lot of time running because he doesn't have time to do that whilst he's training with Ineos, um, as a bike rider, as a, as a world tour rider. So, so he's running often gets left behind. So if he gets an opportunity in the next 10 weeks to train, you know, properly in his running, I can't wait to see how well he can go against, you know, the best of the best at at the World Championships in Kona. It's going to be, there's going to be plenty of other good uh, races in that race. So it, it'll be fantastic uh, to see how it all pans out. I can't wait. The last thing that's caught my attention is just the dominance of Jakob Ingebrigtsen, the Norwegian superstar track runner. We speak about him a lot. Uh, we spoke in a few episodes ago about the fact that he lost surprisingly the 1500 meters and he came back with a vengeance at the World Champs and absolutely dominated the 5000 meters. He made sure he won that. And I think that loss in the 1500 has sparked a bit of a fire in the belly. I don't think we'll see him losing too many more races again after that, which is, and he's still so young. He's, he's 21 or 22. And he's just backed it up by doing the double at the European Championship. So he's European now European champion in the 1500 and 5000. And he won them both in pretty emphatic fashion. He just 
ran the legs off them all. And it was, it's, we just mentioned him because it's truly inspiring to see, but we just love his race tactics and the way he goes about all races. He, he's still the only one that goes to the back at the start of every race. He doesn't run the first hundred meters as a flat out sprint. He runs it at his pace. And then once they all slow down between 100 and 200 and 300 meters, he just keeps his pace going and, and brings himself to the front, maybe around the 300, 400 mark. In the heats, he was even more aggressive with that strategy. And by aggressive, I mean he sat at the back for three and a bit laps, which can be risky because in the 1500, people can trip over. But he was conserving energy. He knew he didn't need to work too hard and he could just dominate them on the last lap, which is what he did. And uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty impressive to see. It was, wasn't it? And you're right. He learned a lot from a mistake that he made at the world title 1500 meters. Um, and, you know, that's probably the the biggest learning curve you're going to get is when you make errors and you know it'll be as you say it could be a long time you know there's plenty of great 1500 meter runners around so the, the possibility of him winning every event from this point on you know is pretty slim but but he will be putting himself in a better position every time because of the mistake he made at the event that counted the most to him he wanted that 1500 meter world title and he didn't get it um and you know that's going to burn you know until next year's world title um where i guarantee if he's in the same form and you know you never know what's going to happen he could get injured and and have a horrible period and and never be the same runner again so you know you've got to take your opportunities when they come and and that was one that's come and gone and uh, i think he's really uh, learned a lot from it we also love his flexibility as an athlete because in the final of the 1500 uh it was literally a day or two ago uh, he went to the back in the first 150 meters and it was a championship final and they all were jogging. It was pedestrian pace and straight away he went, I'm not going to do deal with this. I'm the best runner here. And he went straight to the front, put the hammer down and basically time trial the whole thing and just run, run the legs off them. And that to us just showed that he's not robotic. He's, he's, he's smart about his tactics. He's willing to change straight away. He's concentrating. He was watching what was happening the first 150 meters and they ended up running a really fast time even though the first 150 meters was extremely slow compared to world standards and again we just love seeing that i was uh, I, I didn't know the result and i was watching it uh live and i was watching the replay live sorry and so <laughs> i didn't actually know who won and i and i almost yelled at the telly whoa here he goes and it was literally up the front straight he took the lead um and it, you know that only ran literally 200 meters and and he just poured the pressure on. And even with an easy 150, 200 meter start, they still ran 55 seconds for the first 400. And I think it was a 152 for the for the 800. Um, so he just piled the pressure on, not not you know running over the top, but but just turning the screws and kept that pressure on the pace. And they were single file. And when you see a 1500 meter race single file, you know the pacemaker is actually. And Inga Britsman was doing it like a pacemaker would. You know, in any of those uh, Diamond League events, they have a pacemaker who sets the pace, and normally it's single file strung out because they're trying to run a fast time. But here he was sitting on the front from basically go to woe, which is a really tough way to run when everybody's sitting on you. But he strung them out so much that there was literally, you know, a metre gap between every runner, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. and, And as they got closer to him, he just strung it out again. Um, and, and then I thought, what's going to happen here? 400 to go. Can he hold on? And boy, he, he put 20 meters into them by the end. Um, it was impressive running. And I know we talk about him a lot, but there's a lot to learn about 
race tactics and knowing what your strengths are. This is the reason why we continue to bring it up because every time he does something, we, you know, I'm sure he's learning heaps, but we're learning heaps watching. So, yeah. so you know, you still and have to have the fitness and ability to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if someone else tried that, it, it would backfire. And we've talked about a lot of the Australian girls uh, running above their level um, and backfiring badly because they don't have the, the ability or the fitness. And, and that's what this podcast is about is teaching you to, to measure your efforts according to your current ability and level of fitness that you have right now. It seems like some uh, one other athlete specifically is learning because we asked the question a while ago when we really pointed out that Ingebrigtsen does this every race. He goes to the back. Why are other athletes letting the best runner in the world sit at the back? If I was in that race, I would just sit on him, you know, and again, you have to have the ability to go with him when he does turn the screws. But uh, Spanish athlete Mo Cotilla, who is one of the world's best runners as well, did that in the 1500-meter final. He went straight to the back behind Ingebrigtsen and just sat on him. And he's the first runner I've seen do it. He's the first top runner I've seen do it and just stuck on him for the whole final and then came third. He couldn't he couldn't get around him or Whiteman in the last 200, but what a brilliant tactic that got him you know, bronze medal at the World Champs. I thought that was uh, really exceptional. Great. Well, let's get into the topic of balance. And there's a few factors here that we want to walk through and uh, impact your ability to get this balance right because there is no black and white rule. We cannot sit here and say that 80-20 works for athletes and everyone should be doing that or polarized training is going to work for you. And we've even had um, sports scientists, exercise scientists come on here and say that um, you know, the polarized thing is, is a general guide in itself because what if someone was doing you know 81% easy, 29% hard or 84% easy, 16% hard, you know, do the, those few percentage make a real difference? Like, does it have to be exactly 80, 20? And when you get into the nitty gritty like that, you're asking pretty poor questions. And instead, it's about your situation. And uh, we want to go through now the factors that actually impact your specific situation. And the first one we want to discuss is how much time do you actually have available to train? Because that will determine your intensity. That's a great uh, starting point. And I think it's a, it really helps summarize, you know, <laughs> Are we training too hard or are we training too easy? Um, and your time that you have available will I've, – I've said to many people over the journey who ask for help in their – you know, for me to come and coach them, um, my first question is, well, how much time do you have available? Um, and the reason I'm asking that is because if you're trying to do an Ironman and you tell me you have five hours of training available to you, then I'll definitely say this is probably not the event you should be trying to do. So it really does, you know, it doesn't matter how hard or easy you train. If you've only got five hours, you have to actually select an event that's appropriate to the time you have available. Um, it's not to say you can't do it, but you know, therefore the hard, the the high intensity or, or not high intensity training, you know, I sort of think is there four hours or five hours is the minimum. If you've if you've only got three, four, five hours available to train and and you want to do maybe a, a, a 70.3 triathlon or an Ironman, then, then, you know, you're going to have to train reasonably hard with intensity in those sessions because you don't have the time for the endurance training. Um, you know, you don't have the time to do recovery. You don't have the time to do sweet spot or tempo, um, you know, or zone two. You, you, you just need to try to keep some fitness and and the best way to do that from all the research I've read and from all the athletes I've coached is you, know, you can function and probably not improve but stay at the same level and that's probably what an athlete who's only got five hours available to him, he can't really expect to be a better athlete than he was if he had 
10 or 12 hours available to him because um, it's just too hard an ask. The balance isn't there from all the sessions you need. So, so that's an example of how time will dictate um, the intensity. So the less amount of time you have, that means you're going to discard some of those other added sessions that you would put in. So therefore, if you've only got three bike sessions you know, and you're a cyclist available to you, you would probably need to do two of them pretty damn hard uh, you know, to, to make sure that you're getting the bang for your buck. And, and you know, the other session needs to be some sort of endurance ride. But how do, you know, if you're doing two one-hour high-intensity sessions, you've only got two hours left for endurance. So there's your endurance ride, and that probably needs to have a really good warm-up a period of high intensity in that ride and a, and a longer warm down. And therefore, you will maintain some, some level of fitness that will, that will not project you as a better athlete than you've been before, but it won't, it won't make you worse. Um, and so that's an example of, um, you know, someone who's got a short amount of time, someone who's got 20 hours to 25 hours. You know, this is where you know, the balance has to be really good. Not saying under five hours you don't have to have the right balance, but but if you if you overtrain with twenty to twenty five hours, you're going to be in the same situation as someone who trains for five hours. You're going to not improve because you're going to be that fatigued from training too much that you're not allowing yourself to recover, uh, get rid of the fatigue, and and in, improve your your uh, performance through fitness. So so the time, you know. For the general athlete that you know, the everyday athlete that we're kind of talking to here is not the professional who has twenty to thirty hours, and it's probably not the person who's got under four. It's probably that person who's got between six and twelve hours, and you know, anywhere between six and twelve hours is a really good uh, opportunity for you to to in, introduce as many variations into your program as possible and get the balance right where you have some intensity, you have some endurance, you have some zone two, and you're enabling yourself to recover. Um, so that is why the time available is a question that I ask every person when they ask to be coached. Yeah, it's almost like the reverse. The The five-hour person is kind of training 80% hard and 20% easy, whereas the 20-hour person would be training 20% hard and 80% easy. I saw a really good uh, graph that represented, you know, the total stress accumulation of a training load throughout a week. And, you know, when you think about it, you're basically trying to give your body the max amount of stress that it can handle because we know that stressing the body produces that uh, plus recovery, produces that uh, fitness effect. Um, so, you're trying to give as much stress as it can handle that so much, but finding that limit, that threshold where you're not overtraining, you're not overfatiguing, you can recover, you can do all the sessions quality um, and you can do it for a long time. You know, you can, you're know, you not just doing that for two weeks, you can do it for six weeks or 12 weeks or 24 weeks. Um, but this graph gave a really good representation of the fact that when you're thinking about the total stress of the body throughout the week, you can't just factor in hard sessions. You can't just factor in just training. You have to factor in everything else in life and it, it gave this graph, it had a line of the, the total threshold you can hold, for example, throughout a week, um, and then maybe your training is is filling up to that line to about sixty percent, and then work is filling up another thirty percent, and then you've got some some family stress that's another fifteen percent, and suddenly you're at one hundred and five percent of that that stress threshold that you can cope with throughout the week, and then it even had in there you know lack of sleep, which is adding to that stress, and if, once you're above that threshold, 
that's when you're getting into dangerous zones of overtraining, over fatigue, lack of motivation, poor mood, all these things that we know are a result of, of being too stressed throughout the week. So yeah, when you're thinking about your entire training week, I really like that representation of thinking about all these things in one. What a, what a great uh, point you've made there, George, on this exact topic that we're talking about, because if you don't factor in other things, you, are you saying they don't exist? Are you saying, you know, work is not part of my, my abs- absolute load through the week? You know, y- you could have a person who works virtually zero. It could be a 65-year-old retired athlete and they've got no stresses of money, no stresses of work. The children are all grown up. You know, they've got very little to worry about except, you know, looking after themselves as compared to a 20 20- 28 year old who's got two young kids you know one and three year old have got a high highly stressful job um and you know other factors in their life are contributing to a load that's creating fatigues like lack of sleep and so straight away you've got you know two different scenarios where um the load for the retired uh, athlete is only related to their training, whereas the load to a to a thirty year old is is totally totally related to many other uh, aspects uh, that will contribute to fatigue, and so definitely um, it's a really great point. And you have to understand that uh, throughout your training week, we, when we talk about the stress, we're really we're really kind of alluding to the stress from your high intensity sessions you know that that 15 minutes or 30 minutes of work you're doing at, at vo2 max or or that you're doing at a really high intensity but that's not the only stress that's happening throughout the week basically every session maybe bar a zone one recovery session but even that to a little degree every zone two session every zone three session even though it's not as much it's still uh creating stress and load in the body and you have to factor that in our next factor which you just mentioned which which is actually age because age does have an impact on on your recovery and on your ability to train hard throughout the week. So yeah, the 65-year-old retired person might be able to train more, but their body actually will inhibit them from training as much as a 30-year-old. And the 30-year-old might have those extra work stresses, but they can recover quicker. So there is this balance of age that you need to factor in with with how well you can perform throughout the week. Yeah, definitely. And um, and you know, from my own experience, um, I, I can certainly say that I'm not recovering as quickly as I used to uh, after the high intensity sessions, so I need a little bit more um, of easier type training. And and you know, don't forget that fatigue is not directly related to intensity. Fatigue is related to endurance as well. You you have a different feeling of, of when you do a high intensity session. You're you're falling off your bike or your running session or your swim pool session. You are barely getting to the change rooms and. And you're feeling overwhelmingly exhausted. And if you do a four-hour zone two session, you have just as much fatigue feeling, but you haven't done any intensity. But you are very, very tired, very sleepy, very exhausted um, because it's just been a long duration session rather than a high intensity session, yet you still get fatigue from it. But it's a different fatigue, but it still contributes to the overall underlying point that we're making that you know how much how much is the balance you know so don't underestimate how every session contributes to fatigue in different ways and doesn't just have to be relatable directly to to the intensity of the session 
And that's why Training Peaks uses the brilliant uh, TSS, the total stress score, because uh, you might do a yeah, really high intensity session throughout the week, but it's kind of short. And then Training Peaks takes into account the, the duration as well, what you're saying. And then you'll do your endurance right Saturday and it's got a bit of intensity thrown in there. And suddenly the TSS of that session, the total stress score does actually come out higher than your midweek session. And so it's no wonder that you come home from those sessions, maybe you know, completely stuffed and sitting on the couch all, all Saturday afternoon. The next factor to think about for um, getting the balance right is how many sports are you actually training for because that really determines um, how hard you can actually go in sessions, especially for triathletes. It's yeah, Just before I talk about triathlon, it's just always intrigued me as uh, if we pick on our other love child, Wood Van Aert or, or <laughs> Pidcock, where you know they're doing cyclocross, they're doing mountain bike, they're doing uh, gravel rides and they're riding in the world tour, you know. It's like four different sports. Um, I know they're all related to pedaling, but they're completely different requirements. You know, the unbound gravel in America, the the, the World Championships of Hungary, that was 300 kilometers, you know. So that's an event that's nine or 10 hours. That's, you know, that's on the one sport, just on your bike for nine or 10 hours. Um, Which, by the so, way, Cam Worth did, did that as yeah, well. He did <laughs> that as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's a good point. But, but yeah. so, you know, doing a variety of activities, no matter, no matter the endurance, the, the time of the activity, short or long, you know, it, it is going to contribute to whether you, you can train harder or, or easier. So, so, the example we're going to talk about is, you know, the difference between one sport and multiple sports. And you could just be a cyclist. And I've just said, in, as an example, you could have four different types of cycling. Now, as a triathlete, you've got to be a good swimmer, you've got to be a good runner, and you've got to be a good rider, or you've got to be capable. You know, we've got plenty of people who can't swim at all, but still can compete in a triathlon. They just get themselves around. They may be shocking bike riders and great swimmers and good runners, but they get themselves around. And they may be a shocking runner and good swimmer and biker, and they still get themselves around. So you, it is possible to train for multiple sports. You know, I often think of the biathlon at the in the in the winter sports where they're having to shoot at a target whilst doing a cross country uh, ski event. You know, to control your heart rate to keep your target. Um, you know, you, you're breathing so still that you can hit a target. Um, when you're shooting six shots or five shots, whatever they do, you know, you have to train for two things like breathing control and your fitness as a cross-country skier. So, so there's, there's lots of things that come into play and, and how do you measure how hard to train in those events? That's the question we're asking. So let's just take, for example, a triathlon, which is the easiest one to talk about. Um, so you've got swimming, riding and running. You know, should you be doing high-intensity sessions in the pool, on the bike, and as a runner? And, and that's a fair enough question that I do get asked. Um, and, you know, I've got my own philosophy on that, and, and that may be right or wrong. And why do I say that? Because I've got examples of people who do well with hardly any high-intensity running, yet they perform brilliantly in triathlon. I've got other examples of people who don't perform that well unless they do have some high-intensity in their running. So there's no right or wrong answer here, but but generally, you can't expect if you're doing three swims, four rides and three runs as a general rule that they all have got high intensity because if you're just a swimmer, you would do probably two or three hard swim sessions with lots of endurance. If you're a cyclist solely as a cyclist, you would do two or three hard bike sessions with the rest of it in zone two, zone three, 
recovery. If you're a runner, you would do one or two hard sessions and the rest of it endurance and, and maybe some strength work. So, so for a triathlete to expect to do three, two or three hard swim sessions, you know, two or three hard bike sessions and two or three hard running sessions, that's just asking for trouble. And logic says that you will, you know, dig a big hole for yourself and bury yourself in that and you won't improve. So, so our, our feeling is that in a triathlon program, you should be using your bike sessions if you're only doing three. Two of them should be extremely hard with high intensity. And therefore, that will give you a cardiovascular system, the, the stimulus that it's required. And there's a crossover. Of course, there is a crossover. Cardiovascular doesn't distinguish between whether you're on the bike or whether you're running. It just knows that you're working hard. So so you don't need to risk the the opportunity where you have to run fast in training, getting on the track and doing, you know, six by 400, where you've already done that on the on the bike. And I know the muscular strength and stability of your running action is important, but you can get that from running up and down hills without actually risking running fast. So so the intensity in a, as a triathlete can't be in every single uh, three disciplines. One of them has to have a, a, a section where it's not about the intensity. And for me, and there would be many people who could have exceptions to this, but for me as a coach and for our, for our Trivalo business, we know that the most successful age groupers are the ones who don't do intervals until maybe two or three weeks out from a race where we ask them to do some fartlek or some some speed sessions. But up until then, we're just building their strength and, and resilience as a runner and not trying not to injure them. So, so that's an example of um, you don't need to do high intensity uh, in a multifaceted uh, event like triathlon. And you do get a lot of huffing and puffing in the water if you're doing, you know, eight, eight by 50 meter sprints. Um, your cardiovascular system is getting stressed as well as it is on a bike. So we don't need to keep repeating that over and over again because too much of that stress we know is actually detrimental to your improvement. So be, be, be happy that, you know, great, I don't actually have to run my, my backside off as a runner and yet I'm still confident that I'll improve as a runner. It's just this constant balance, isn't it? And we had a great chat um, last week with Ryan about the balance between sports science, what the science says, and what the coaching says. And we know that running faster will dramatically improve your running ability, um, dramatically improve your overall fitness. But just as a coach, you are so rarely willing to do that to athletes because you just know the outcome is so often injury. And there are smart ways to go out to go about it to build to build up that strength in the legs to do gym work to get get yourself to a point where you can handle that but for a lot of athletes you know they're not they're not professionals that can spend that with the required amount of time to really get their body uh in that position straight away which is why towards the end of the program a lot of them can handle it which is what you mentioned but um at the start of a program you're just not willing to risk that just throwing them straight into intervals that you know scientifically will get them faster um but the this is where you're 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 managing the, the coaching risk and um, you have to factor, this is why we're going through these principles, you have to factor these things in when you're thinking about where am I putting my high intensity throughout the week and where am I staying a little bit easier. I just had a, you know, one of the athletes that we coached this week who's just come onto the program and, and you know, when I interview the athletes, I'm really asking them to trust the process and ask as many questions about why we're doing each particular session so they're really informed about, they're on board together with me 
about why we're doing these specific type of running sessions where we're staying away from intensity. And just so happened that um, he was meant to do a bike session. Um, he only had an hour and it turned out that he was training outside and he had a rear puncture and it was too big to repair. And he, by the time he would have gone home and changed tires, because no matter what tube he had it was not going to work he had to change tires he didn't have enough time for the session so he just thought right i'll just go running and i'll run it was meant to be a high intensity bike session so i'll just do a high intensity run session instead and you know generally you would think that would be okay but in week one of a new program i was horrified i was like oh my goodness i hope this doesn't come back and you're injured from this and you know he tried to do the right thing by by just um, you know, getting the same principle of what the session was about, but doing it as a run. But my fear is that that could have injured him straight away. And and I'm spending all this time, maybe six to eight weeks, staying away from intensity running. Um, and yet, you know, in week one is an example of someone who thought they were doing the right thing, but it could backfire. And so far it hasn't. But, but you know, that's an example of how panicky I was um, with someone actually, you know, taking a really good idea and putting it to what they thought would work well, but potentially it could have actually put them out for four weeks, five weeks with a, a, a torn calf or, or a hamstring or, or shin splints for, for all we know. So, you know, th- these things are really, you know, it's all very well to talk about um, the perfect uh, program and what you should be doing 80% and 20% or 80 Every athlete needs to be, understanding where they are at a particular time in their in their year week and month and day and that you know that leads us exactly into the next factor which is the history of the athlete because um you as a coach if they do that in week one maybe someone that's come from a strong background of running and they can handle that you wouldn't be as afraid of them doing that in week one whereas an athlete that's coming from a bit more of a beginner background you are like you said absolutely staying away from intensity for at least the first six to eight weeks maybe more while you get those first two principles of frequency of training and volume of training up so the history of where you are as an athlete completely depicts um, how much intensity you can do throughout a week and, and getting this balance right. Yeah, we often talk about it, don't we? Fitness in the bank. How much fitness have you invested into your bank? And, you know, the analogy of the bank account, you know, that if if you are a young kid who's got a, a new bank account and you're eight years old and, you know, I remember growing up, we used to put a dollar a week away into a bank account and accumulates, you know, because we weren't allowed to withdraw. That was that was the thing. You you could withdraw the money when you were eighteen. So you know the goal was to get two hundred or three hundred dollars into your bank account uh, up until you're eighteen, and then here you are. You've got you know some small amount of money to start off with buying whatever you want, and and you know that is the same with with training. The more that you can actually train and keep putting uh, time into your fitness bank, it can never be taken away from you unless. You know, no one can take the money out of the bank that you've put in unless it's robbed, and then your money's still secure anyway. The same with fitness. As a as a as a person who is accumulating training session after training session, you are building up an enormous bank of fitness that can never be taken away from you. No matter if you get injured or sick, you've still got that bank of three weeks, three years, or thirty years, depending on how, where you've been. And so, the longer you have been doing this. Uh, fitness training for 
If it's two years, you've got a really solid foundation. If it's two months, you have a really small foundation where lots of more risks and injuries are going to be higher. The percentage of things going wrong, if you push the intensity too much, are greater earlier when your fitness bank is small. You know, a guy who's been running or doing triathlon for 10 years who swaps coaches and comes across, he doesn't need to, to, to go back to the beginning of basics of, of running training. He's already got this enormous base that just needs refining. Um, so, so yes, the history of your fitness bank is absolutely key in determining, you know, how hard or how easy to train at any given moment during a season. So, I hope you can see how all these factors really play into each other because your history um, as an athlete determines uh, how many high-intensity sessions you can do and that's tied in with you know your history in, in the sport. You might have been a really uh, good cyclist um, and had a strong history in cycling, but if you're switching to triathlon and you haven't had much history in running, that's what we we're talking about before with uh, the specificity of the sport required. Um, all these factors play in and then the next one that, that ties into all of it, once you understand all these things is recovery and uh, you know you think that you re- recovery sessions are recovery sessions you know you should be able to fit in as many as you can per, per week but that's not true either because if you're not used to the frequency of training if you haven't got a strong history if you're training for multiple sports sometimes doing a recovery session can still be too much if your fatigue levels are too high yes uh, it's it's a, it's a very controversial topic and look there isn't a lot of fantastic scientific data to tell us that um, that recovery is is advantageous or not. Um, I think it's a very individual thing, but if you're trying to build your fitness bank up, I, I'm a firm believer in if you can get more frequency of training into you, as long as you're f- controlling your fatigue levels, then I think the recovery rides are, are valuable. The recovery rides for some athletes really help with the blood flow and repairing the, the damage to the, the, the working muscles that the hard sessions have done. And just by sitting around, it doesn't seem to enable them to train that well on the next day or the day after. But having said that, if you've got a really good warm-up routine, then you will probably feel quite good um, after an extended warm-up. You know, warm-up more if you've taken a day off. So I'm, a, I'm in both camps. I, I feel that if you've got a good fitness bank and you've and you've been training for a long time and you're older, so I'm putting a whole lot of things in there, you could take days off, more days off than you would have if you're very new to the sport and you need to build your fitness up. But at the same time, if you're new to the sport and need to build your fitness up, you need more recovery because your body can't absorb the load. So, so there's no one best fit here. So... You know, you've got to understand yourself how you're feeling at any given point during any phase of the program that you're in. If you're in the base phase and you've just started a new program, then you need to give yourself some more recovery. And that doesn't mean training recovery, it means resting recovery. So, you know, how much do we do? That is very individual. And as long as you understand the pros and cons and you understand the benefits and uh, the downsides to and the reasoning behind it, you can make an informed decision. You can make a decision about, I do want to do recovery today or I do just want to have a rest day. And um, that's really, really important. And that helps you be a knowledgeable athlete where you can get the most out of yourself throughout the week. And that's the whole point of this episode. And that, that leads us 
between zone one recovery rides into zone two and how much zone two do you do because that does give a fitness benefit there is a real purpose to that kind of training but obviously with with that kind of benefit comes the the fatigue and comes the added load throughout the week and uh, we talk all the time about where do you sit in zone two um do you sit at the very bottom at you know 60% 60% or do you sit right at the, let's say that your bottom of your zone two is 60% or the top of your zone two is 75%. Where do you sit in that? And once again, it's a, it's an answer that doesn't have a black and white um, solution, but you can still gain the knowledge to make informed decisions for yourself. Yeah. And there's so many aspects that we could talk about when we talk about zone two and we've talked about zone two a lot in podcasts, but not in relation to, um, I think the balance of hard and easy training. And, and I always think zone two changes depending on where you are in your season. Um, zone two early on in the season, I would be, uh, reasonably not at my best fitness level because I should have had an easier period post my A race. And so my zone two post an A race might be looking like 60% for two hours. Yet when I'm getting really into the build and the race ready phase, my zone two could be four hours at 75% and my body can, can handle that load and I don't feel fatigued two days later. But that's what we're talking about. It depends where you are in the season, what you've just done and what you're trying to do with your fatigue loads and how you're trying to manage them. Um, so, you know, that is a really key thing to consider when you're wondering, you know, where should I be in zone two? Because it's got, it's got a bit of a range to it. Um, and that's why heart rate is, is, a, is really good. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an avid believer in using as many different pieces of data that's available to you, not just one thing. And we often talk about power being the key thing. But in zone two, power is what I I understand at the start of my ride that is going to be the range I want to sit between. For example, I might say for myself, my range is 200 to 225 watts in zone two, you know, or 195 to 225 watts. So 60 to 75%, wherever, somewhere, somewhere in that range. But if I'm riding in the Sunshine Coast where it's 25 degrees, I could be riding too hard because I'm overheating. And how do I know that? Well, my heart rate's a really good measure to to determine how hard this ride is. And I've done this experiment on myself many times. Um, If I do a zone two ride in the cooler temperatures of Melbourne, at at 200 watts, my heart rate might be 130 to 135. At, At 225 watts, it might be 135 to 140. But if I do that same session in the Sunshine Coast, 200 watts, my heart rate is at 135 to 40 and 140 to 40, 145 um, if I'm doing 220 watts. So, so the same power is giving me a different outcome uh, and my heart rate is enabling me to understand that. So the minute I go to the Sunshine Coast, I make sure my heart rate meter is I'm looking at it for that two or three hours that I'm doing zone two. And I'm meant to be doing 225 watts because I'm extremely motivated to be at 75%. But I look down in the first hour, yep, I'm under I'm under 135 heart rate. But then I get to an hour and a half to two hours. That 220 watts is now at 136, 137. So I have to drop the power back. And that is a really good way of understanding when to ride hard and when to and I'm not, I'm not saying zone two is hard. It is hard because it's endurance long. It's a different fatigue to intensity hard. Uh, but it's that constant pressure which the heart rate creep will show you 
that, you know, you, you are training too hard here. Ease up. Um, and, you know, added to that, if you have someone who's riding with you who's just half a wheel ahead of you the whole time, you know, I've been in that position many times where I've just gone, I'll see you later and push them ahead of me and said, I'm not riding at that pace anymore. I'm going to go back to where I should be after two or three minutes. And that that takes discipline. That that takes, you know, a lot of no ego, like, because we're just competitive. We just want, if someone's half a wheel in front of us or 10 meters at the road, we can't help ourselves. We, we, we just want to go and join them. Um, um, but, you know, it's not, it's detrimental to the outcome of the session. And, and, you know, the best thing to say is, hey, listen, tomorrow we're doing flat out three-minute VO2 sets. Come and join me then and let's, let's half-wheel each other then. And, and, you know, make a point of this is the day where I'm doing this session and the other day I'm doing that session. And these are the things that, you know, you've, you've got to understand in, in determining how hard and how easy to train is, who you're training with. Um, and that brings me to where are you? What course have you selected? Um, you know, zone two, if you select a course that's got 4,000 metres of climbing, unless you've got a gear ratio that's like a mountain bike, you're going to be riding too hard. Your heart rate will be high because the hill at 12 or 14% is impossible to ride at 200 watts. You wouldn't get up the hill unless you've got a granny gear that's enabling you to go sideways. So you can't pick a course for zone two that's going to stop you from actually achieving the goal of keeping in the right area and not creating fatigue from making the, the, the day too hard. It's it's funny because it um, you've really got to pay attention to what's happening on the day and all those factors you spoke about are just so accurate and, and one other thing for me that I find all the time is that I'll go to do a zone two run after a really hard training day before and my zone my zone two running range is um, might be between four and four thirty pace and I'm running five fifteen pace for the first or five thirty pace for the first um, five minutes ten minutes sometimes fifteen minutes because I'm so fatigued from the day before and that would normally be considered zone one you know and it's supposed to be a zone two effort um, but I know that I'll come good it just might take a little bit for the first session so I'm not saying that the whole session I have to drop the pace but just at the start when I feel like absolute crap being willing to drop that pace and and sit and, and hold there and because and, your heart rate's high straight away it's and well, but once you get into the session once you've warmed up a little bit suddenly getting back to that zone two pace feels really good and feels really comfortable and your heart rate is the same as it was at the start of the session um, even though you're running 45 seconds faster per kilometre. Um, and that's a factor that you have to consider. Yeah, your feelings, aren't they? They're so important about, you know, it doesn't matter what's scheduled on the day. If after an extended warm-up, you're meant to be doing something that's hard and you can't feel that feeling, then you need to not do that session hard. You need to drop it back a percentage or scrap the intensity and just do recovery. And, you know, you're not going to know that till you get after the warm-up. And, and some the the, diff, the the confusing part is: Am I being lazy? You're asking yourself this question: Am I being lazy, or is this because I'm exhausted? Um, and if it's because you're being lazy, then you pursue the warm up a bit longer. But if you're exhausted, then you know you you put the shoes or the or the bike, you hang it up and and rest because because these are the things. Even though you're trying to work to a model and a program, there's always exceptions, and you need to be flexible. Um, we say a lot that consistency is king, not at the detriment of fatigue. You know, it's great to have consistency, but
But if it causes too much fatigue, then it's not great to have consistency. You're better off having rest days. Um, so, so that balance comes back again to how are you feeling? Like you just said, you've got to listen to how you're feeling. And and you know, if you're being coached by someone and they're asking you what happened today, give them the real answer. You know, I'm not lazy. I got out there. I no way could I push the numbers, so I've just done this session instead. And the coach will be on board with that, you know, and he will absolutely talk about what we should do the next day and the next day so that you don't create more fatigue because if that athlete is feeling that, a good coach will then restructure the next two days and it could be just that day that you felt bad and the next day you're good to go again. But but that's the important relationship you need to have with your coach is, you know, keeping them up informed as to how you're coping with with each each session as it as it goes through the, the days and weeks and to finish off we want to talk about the opposite end of the spectrum and that is the actual high intensity sessions themselves and you know when we talk about um anything above above that 100 percent intensity and that that is um you can be riding at 100 percent or 105 percent uh intensity in quotation marks uh, for a session um right up to vo2 max level which it can be you know 115 120 percent plus um and the question still remains, getting really specific, how hard do you actually go in hard sessions? So, we've spoken generally about easy versus hard, but when it's time to train hard, how hard do you push yourself? Is there a, is there a line that's too hard? And I think the answer is there absolutely is. Yes. Um, you know, anything, anything where you're riding from threshold up to VO2 up to anaerobic, you know, zone four, five, six, seven and onwards, you know, they're all variations of extremely hard. And obviously, riding threshold is a you know is a longer effort. It could be four to eight to twelve to fifteen, even to twenty minute efforts at threshold. VO two is probably four minutes, you know, two minutes to four minutes, and anaerobic is more zero to one minute. So, so they're all going to give you the stimulus that you want. Um, they are all totally relatable to whatever the event you're in. Um, if you're doing a, an Ironman compared to an 800 meter, then you might not do as much anaerobic stuff in an Ironman training program. You might do more threshold, but you're still doing something above 100%. You know, that's the key thing. Understand that first and foremost, these this zone that we're talking in, whether it's zone four, five, six, or seven, it's still going to give you the stimulus you need. So, so for you to to think that. I've got to go all out and like this is no tomorrow for this training session. I think that's a bit of a mistake. Um, a, we want to train to race and we just don't want to be good trainers. We want to on race day be at our best when it counts. It's great training well. We we get great endorphin releases from it, very satisfied. Our program's going well. If it happens on race day that, all the hard training you've done and you've you've probably trained too hard in bits and you still perform well on race day, well and good. But invariably, you will find the people who train hard will race badly. And I'm talking about extreme here. Not, not people who train hard properly, people who train hard to the extreme. So if I'm giving you a threshold session where you're trying to do five-minute efforts, five of them, and your range is... 100 to 105 percent, or 102 to 107 percent of your FTP. If you continually do that at 110 percent or 108 percent because you're feeling good, one or two things is wrong here. Your threshold set wrong, 
because you shouldn't be able to do that. Or you're just pushing yourself way too far and you would not do well the next day or the day after or in three or four days' time. So stick with your ranges because that's what the ranges are for to prevent you from over-fatiguing yourself so that when it comes to race day, you can actually perform at your best because you've, you're so fresh, so tapered, and you have very little fatigue. Um, this example, a discussion I had with a, um, a few people who are going over to do the Hort route, um, and I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning this. And um, one of the things we talked about was we got to the end of the campaign, the Hort route's in, it starts this weekend, um, and by the time this podcast comes out, it have already started. But the week, the two weeks leading into the Hort route, they've, you know, it, it's stage racing for, for amateurs. It's it's an incredible event. It's fantastic. It's stage racing with GC points, um, and you know, there's thousands of people enter it, and um, each day is between 120 and 160 kilometers over five, seven days. It's got time sections. Um, it's you feel like you are in a in a grand tour, but for amateurs. Um, so it's an age group thing, and and so it's a big thing to go overseas from Australia to go and do the the Pyrenees or the Hort Route uh, Alps. Um, there's many Hort Route races available to everybody, as most people would know. And the point I'm trying to get to is, if you're if you're going to get to that event and not taper properly and get into the event tired, then you're not giving yourself the best opportunity after all the training you've done so well, and. I actually had to all well, I had to ring from Australia to France to say, "What the hell are you doing? What was yesterday's ride about? It was meant to be a one and a half hour easy ride, and it ended up being a five hour, one hundred and forty k ride, seven days out from the event. And you know, I'm not saying this is a, a shocking outcome, but it's just not helpful um, in terms of of understanding what you're trying to do in your training. You've done all the right things. You've trained very well. You've got to this point. Now we we need to shed the fatigue and just sharpen up with some short, sharp bursts. So come race day, you can actually execute as brilliantly as you want to. And so this is an example of how hard we should be training at different different points in our program. And and the example I've given you um, is detrimental to to what this person's wanting to do in the next two weeks uh, in a stage race. Um, but it could prove that it's not that detrimental. Well, time will tell. So I can definitely be convinced that for that person it might be okay, um, but I'll only be able to make that decision post-race. So, you know, we don't know. Everybody's different. And so that's another point that I kind of like to finish on with the high-intensity sessions um, you know, we do know that everybody will react differently and it has to be specific to you and how your performance is. And you can only gauge that by doing multiple events over years where you know, well, this worked better for me than this tapering recovery type um, training um, lead into my big event. So, so to some, you know, that's sort of what I'm trying to summarize the whole podcast, what we're trying to you know, work out is the training balance between hard and hard and easy training, and when to do it. Um, and so the final the final sort of measurement is how well did you race with the training that you had leading into it. And it's not just about the fifteen or twenty five weeks you did. The taper week and the testing week prior are a part of that. And there's there's 
there's you know very little volume in those tapering uh, testing weeks um, because you're trying to get rid of fatigue. So, so the model of periodization or polar is great, but it doesn't fit everybody. And that's the point of this podcast. You you are able to have bits of everything that you have experimented with um, over the journey of your of your short or long career that you are evolving as you go. And the balance, there is no right or wrong answer. And that's the key message I'm trying to get across here. We do need extreme levels of of uh, training to get to a point where we're going to race well. And I don't mean extreme as in over the top where you can't actually train consistently. I mean there has to be hard periods. There has to be easy periods. There has to be recovery periods. And if you get that balance right and you perform consistently well in your races, then you've, you've found the key to the door. And, and that is the hard part for everybody is, you know, really experimenting and, and learning from, from campaigns that you've tried to, this, to do to this event and then, then recovered and tried the next campaign. Try things slightly different and experiment um, over the journey and, and you will get that balance. Um, you'll get that balance right. But it takes a lot of understanding of, of how you're feeling on any given day and whether the program is appropriate for you. And therefore, you can't just have one program that fits all. Um, and you can't have one taper that fits all. Um, you can't have one intensity type session that fits all. You can't go over the top on, on things. You can't underdo it. There's there's never one thing that you, sh- that you could say that fits everybody. So, so I think that would be the message that we're trying to get across today. And, um, and hopefully that's what, what the listeners have heard. That's a great way to finish. I think the only thing I'd, I'd add on that is what you're talking about here. You know, you're constantly experimenting, trying to get this balance right. And I think without giving advice that's going to be unsafe, I think that it is worth pushing the limits and pushing the line to find where's too much, find where's where that fatigue level where you can't cross. I think I've definitely been guilty of making the mistake of potentially training too easily for a period because I was coming from a conservative approach and. Um, I didn't actually try and push that line and I probably wasn't getting the most out of myself. Whereas then I went through a period where I was probably overtraining, but it was good to see the difference in volume and intensities and go, okay, well, I was too easy before. Now I find where I can't handle and now I know I can just back it off a little bit and that seems to work for me. And so, again, we don't want to we don't want people to cross that line and get injured or do anything unsafe, but uh, it is worth trying to find those limits so you know what you can handle. Yeah, and, you know, one of the key concepts of uh, improvement is overload. And if you just train the same day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, you will stay the same. So you need some aspect of overload. But what we're trying to get across here is the balance that you have. And you sure you need every session that we've talked about. You need to think about courses and terrain and part- training partners. But but you need overload and and without that, you will stay the same. And that would be a key takeaway as well. You still need to stress your body to a point where you are improving. That's a great way to finish. Hope you've enjoyed this packed episode. And as always, we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.